as we come to look at God's word together now, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We pray that as we consider it together, you will speak clearly to us. Amen. Uh, we're going to actually um, split our, our talk into two parts today, uh, for the sake partly of, um, of our young, younger members listening in, and actually just for all of us to help with um, it being that bit harder to uh, concentrate on the screen. Uh, so we'll start now. Uh, we'll have a song as a break partway through, uh, and then we'll continue. Um, so uh, we're finishing off our series on Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, and we've jumped over to Acts 16 this morning. Um, as you probably spotted at the beginning of uh, what Hannah just read, uh, Acts 16 recounts Paul's time in Philippi. Hopefully it will um, shed some light for us on Philippi uh, and on how this church that Paul later wrote to started out. Uh, and you'll know already if you've been with us over the last few weeks uh, from verse 12 of chapter 16 that we just read, uh, that Philippi was a Roman colony. Uh, it was in Macedonia, uh, the northeastern part of modern Greece. Uh, and it was a, a major town on the Ignatian Way, uh, one of the many roads that leads to Rome. Uh, and it would have been filled with Roman citizens and veterans. Uh, so in, in verse 12 of the passage that we just read, uh, Paul and his co-workers land there. But immediately, um, their visit begins to diverge from the pattern that we often find in Acts. Instead of heading to the local synagogue, um, we can only assume that there were so few Jewish believers in Philippi that there wasn't a synagogue. Um, instead, they head, in verse 13, outside the city to the river, where they find a place of prayer and a group of women who are interested in what they have to say. But here again, things diverge from the common pattern in Acts. Instead of um, Luke telling us uh, something of the message that was shared and, and of the corporate response to it, you know, many people were interested, wanted to know more, believed, but some people didn't and rejected the message. Instead of that, Luke takes his camera and he focuses it on just one individual, on Lydia, in verse 14. What do we see in Lydia's story? Well, let's read it again, um, starting partway through verse 13. Uh, we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. What do we see in Lydia's story? Well, we, we see a model response, don't we? The apostles teach, Lydia listens, she responds, she gets baptised, she welcomes the apostles into her home. Done and dusted. It's all tied up in just two verses. If only it were that simple, we think. And, and let's face it, I mean, she has a lot going for her, this Lydia, doesn't she? She's well off enough as a cloth trader that she can live as an independent woman. And she was already a worshipper of God, verse 14 tells us. And she was ready and willing to listen to this new message of Jesus uh, that we know from elsewhere in Acts would have been what Paul was teaching. She had a lot going for her, this Lydia, didn't she? Well, yes and no. It would all be so straightforward, you see, if it wasn't for that little sentence Luke slips in at the end of verse 14. Did you spot it? The Lord opened her heart 
to respond to Paul's message. Take a moment to reflect on what that means and why Luke would slip it into the narrative here. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. You see, on her own, Lydia didn't stand a chance. She was no closer to God, no more able to turn to, please, or obey God than anyone else. On her own, Lydia didn't stand a chance. Lydia didn't become a Christian because she was already such a good moral person. Lydia didn't become a Christian because her friends were Christians, because she didn't know any better, because she was carried away in emotion, because she hadn't been exposed to other worldviews. Lydia didn't become a Christian because of Paul's excellent explanation of the problem of suffering or the relationship between faith and science, or because of just a perfectly worded phrase in his logic that finally convinced her. No. Lydia became a Christian because God opened her heart to Paul's message. The gospel of Jesus Christ killed and risen for her. Lydia became a Christian because God opened her heart. In our, uh, in our house, all the internal doors downstairs have um, little locks at the top on the outside, a bit like the ones you'd find on the toilet door. It's, it's really strange. Um, but it means that, that if somebody went into a room, you could lock them in from outside and there's no way they'd be able to get out. They'd be stuck. You can only unlock them from the outside. There's um, definitely some prank potential there. Well, that's a bit like what our hearts are like, Luke says here. Our hearts are like closed doors. They're locked shut. They're barricaded. They're closed to Jesus, closed to the truth. And we have no way of opening them. They can only be opened from the outside. They can only be opened by God. But wonderfully, that is exactly what God is in the business of doing. We have a God who loves to open closed hearts. who makes it his business to unlock our barricaded hearts that we might respond to his gospel message. His message of a broken world ruined by sin, but a world he loves so much that he sent his only son to be made nothing, to become a human, to be killed shamefully on a cross, to pay the penalty for our sins. His son, who was then raised back to life, a historical event that no one has yet been able to disprove, raised back to life to prove that we can be forgiven, that our sins can be taken away if we trust in him. On our own, we wouldn't stand a chance. But we have a God who loves to open closed hearts, that we might respond to his gospel message and be saved. We have a God who loves and is powerful to save. What does this mean for us? Well, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, as you listen, then first and foremost, this means that you can rejoice. You can rejoice that God has saved you. He has done this work in you. He's unlocked and opened your heart to respond to him. On your own, you wouldn't have stood a chance. But what you could never have done, 
God has done for you. He's opened your closed heart. He's brought you from death to life. He's taken away your sin. He's brought you into the kingdom of the son he loves. No wonder Paul wrote so many times in his letter that the Philippian Christians should rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. If we have been saved by Jesus, we will be people who rejoice. Now, you might not be feeling very joyful right now. Frankly, you might be feeling exhausted and fed up. Fed up of being stuck at home. Fed up of doing life online. How practically, I wonder, could, could we help ourselves to remember to rejoice this week? I think the video we just watched had loads of good ideas. A few more, um, a few more I thought of. Um, you might have noticed in Magnet on Friday that our pre-recorded worship songs are all up on our church YouTube channel. Why not re-listen to a few favourites this week? Uh, maybe, maybe you've got used to um, life at home. You haven't really ventured out yet. Well, why don't you arrange a walk or meet up in the garden with a good Christian friend? Someone you know will encourage you and help you to rejoice. Or maybe, in your, prayer, maybe your prayer life has been um, swallowed up by petition things you're asking of God. And it's been a while since you thanked God for anything. Well, as Hannah suggested uh, from Philippians 4, why don't you take a few minutes to make a mental list of things to be thankful for? And then maybe one day this week, just devote your prayer time just to prayers of thanks. No asking, no petitions, no requests, just thanks. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. So we can rejoice that God has saved us. Secondly, we must remember that God has saved us. On our own, we didn't stand a chance. We were hardwired by our sinful natures to slip back into following religion instead of the gospel, to look for rules to obey and to want to work in our own strength rather than accepting the free gift of God's grace. We talk as if we're saved by grace but we walk as if we think we will stand before God based on what we have done. We confuse serving God out of joyful thankfulness with serving God to earn his love and his praise. But on our own, we didn't stand a chance. We need to remember that God has saved us. Maybe, um, maybe you failed to do a quiet time again. You thought you had it sorted. You were setting the alarm 20 minutes earlier. You pulled it off every day for nearly a week. But then this week happened and you're just really frustrated. You failed again. But remember, God isn't a tight-fisted boss checking your timesheet every day to see if you've put in the hours to earn your paycheck. No. On your own, you don't stand a chance, but God has saved you. And when he looks at you, instead of seeing your inadequacy and lack of commitment, he sees Jesus's prayerful devotion to his loving father and his intercession on your behalf. God has saved you. It's a done deal. Maybe you're looking back over three months of lockdown and thinking it hasn't quite turned out how you'd expected. The Christian books on the shelf remain unread. 
you really thought you were going to go to more church stuff, prayer breakfast, women's Bible study, first Tuesday. Now it's all gone online. But that hasn't really happened. And even home group is a battle. You struggle to make it to the end of online church services that you were so enthusiastic about when it all began. And you're a lot less good at catching up later when the kids are in bed than you'd like to be admit. But remember, God won't be standing at the gates of heaven, ticking off his checklist of all the things you have and haven't done. No. On your own, you don't stand a chance. But God has saved you. When he looks at you, instead of seeing your empty promises and lack of commitment, he sees Jesus' perfect life lived for you. God has saved you. It's a done deal. Or, or maybe in this season, you're actually at the other end of the, church, of the spectrum. You haven't missed an online church service yet. You're always there till the end in the breakout rooms. You're at every meeting. You're in every WhatsApp group, telling everyone what you've been praying for, all the wonderful opportunities you've been having, all the amazing things you, sorry, God has been doing. Well, remember, God isn't the teacher with the behaviour chart looking for people to cover in gold stickers. On your own, you don't stand a chance. But God has saved you. When he looks at you, instead of seeing your gold stickers or your lack of them, he sees the blood of Jesus that covers over your sin. God has saved you. It's a done deal. Brothers and sisters, because Jesus died on the cross and has been raised, we can know that God has saved us. It's in the back. It's all him. So we can rejoice that he's saved us and we can remember that he's saved us. But perhaps you're listening into this. And you're a bit like Lydia and sort of pre-meeting Paul rather than post. You've thought about Christian things before. You probably believe in God. You'd agree with a lot of what you know of the Bible. You know quite a few Christians. But you're not yet a Christian yourself. Well, let me gently ask you, what's stopping you? Is it that you're waiting for something? Some final piece of evidence? An undefeatable argument? Well, be careful. What piece of evidence is going to be enough to convince you? What's it going to take? Or maybe what stops you is that you don't feel good enough. You're not the right sort of person to be a Christian. Well, don't worry. None of us are. None of us are good enough for God. On our own, we don't stand a chance. But God loves to save weak, broken people like us. Talk to any Christian you know, at any depth, and you'll find that none of us have our lives even close to sorted, however glossy they might seem from the outside. On our own, we don't stand a chance. But God loves to save weak, broken people like us. So if you haven't prayed before, or maybe not for a while, why don't you pray and ask God to open your heart to his message? What's the worst that can happen? So Lydia um, isn't the only person that we see saved in Philippi. Um, the second person takes up a lot more of the chapter and is rather more dramatic. To cut a long story short, Paul, fed up of being harassed by a slave who's following them around everywhere, and casts an evil spirit out of her by the power of Jesus. 
in verse 18. Um, we don't have time now to go into what the Bible says about evil spirits or slavery, um, other than to say that evil spirits are real, they're powerful, but they're much, much less powerful than God, and that slavery is wrong. God values all people equally. Um, do you speak to a Christian friend or, or drop us an email if that's something you'd like to chat through with someone. Um, but back to the story. Um, the slave girl's masters are furious that they've lost their source of income as they were making a profit from her future telling abilities. And they convince the local magistrates to throw Paul and Silas into prison in verse 23. And we're introduced there to this um, rather nondescript jailer who puts them in the inner cell and fastens their feet into the stocks. These prisoners aren't going anywhere. Except God has some rather different ideas. Um, while Paul and Silas are praising God in verse 25, uh, he sends an earthquake which shakes the foundations of the prison, sends the doors flying open and destroys the chains holding these men captive. The jailer, on discovering the commotion, is about to fall on his sword in verse 27. He knows that his life is not worth living if these prisoners have escaped. But Paul intervenes, verse 28, with this cliffhanger moment. Don't harm yourself, says Paul. We are all here. You can just imagine the shock for the jailer. There they are, a prison full of prisoners, unchained, unbound, the doors swinging wide open before them, the cold night breeze coming in and tickling their toes. And they're just sitting there. Utterly bowled over, verse 29, the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The killer question, what must I do to be saved? You can just imagine his mind racing. He's seen how awfully they've been treated, how graciously they've borne it, how incredibly God has intervened, and how astonishingly they've opted to save his life and stay rather than making a break for it. And he asks the only question he could possibly ask. What must I do to be saved? I want what you've got. I want what you've got. And then, uh, like, like with Lydia earlier, it's almost as if the rest is history. It's done and dusted in a few verses. Verse 31, if you've got a Bible open, follow it with me. And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptised. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe, he and his whole household. So Paul and Silas tell him he must believe in Jesus, verse 31. They teach him God's word, verse 32. He believes, as do his whole household. He's baptised and he offers hospitality to the apostles and it's done and dusted. Just like with Lydia, there's interest Jesus is proclaimed, God's word is preached, God opens a closed heart to respond, and a whole household believe and are baptised. It's simple. Once again, we see a person who on their own didn't stand a chance. But we see a God who loves to open closed hearts and save people. And if we thought that Lydia was a bit of an obvious candidate, 
What I love about this passage is how totally different the jailer is in that respect. He's a middle-ranking Roman official, probably a retired soldier. He'd known little of the Jewish faith, probably nothing of Jesus. Ordinarily, he wouldn't have given two hoots about what Paul and Silas had to say. Yet God had chosen him, and God dramatically intervened. God opened his heart, and God saved him. And so, um, a bit like the 80-year-old granny on her sofa in Merseyside, a lifelong fan since her dad took her to Anfield as a young girl, to the 10-year-old boy in Kazakhstan who's only ever seen them on the TV and on the internet, both leaping out of their seats for joy earlier this week as Liverpool won the Premier League. So here we have Lydia and this jailer standing side by side, both saved, both rejoicing, both with hearts opened by God and founding members of this Philippian church, Paul later wrote to. They have nothing in common in the world's eyes, but they have everything in common in knowing Jesus. On their own, they wouldn't have stood a chance, but God has saved them. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And so, MRC, let us rejoice that just like this, God has saved us. And let us remember that just like this, God has saved us. Just as there would be no place for Lydia to think that she was more deserving of God's grace than the jailer, nor is there any place for us to look down on other Christians and to think that we've earned our place at God's table more than them. We're, we're better, we're, we're serving better. We deserve God's love in a way they don't. And if we believe us, doesn't this picture that God is powerful to open closed hearts, that he loves to save whoever he chooses, doesn't that both spur us to and shape our evangelism, our efforts to tell our friends and family who don't yet know him the good news of Jesus and his death and resurrection? How does it spur us? Well, it shows us that God loves to save and that he can do extraordinary things. He can open the hardest of hearts. He can work incredible miracles to save just one family. He's so much more loving, so much more powerful than we so often think. How does it shape us? Well, it reminds us that God is in charge. He knows who he will save and how he will do it. It is not up to us. He'll choose people we don't expect and he'll bring them to him in ways we don't expect. So maybe, um, maybe it's a while since you've shared the gospel with anyone. You remember younger years when you were bolder, but now life seems to have gotten in the way. As you face discouragements and distraction, your prayer for people has grown cold, even fizzled out. Let this be a reminder, an inspiration, a spur. God is in the business of saving people. So pray. Share the message like Paul and Silas and wait to see what God will do. Or maybe you find yourself frustrated at God. There's a friend for whom you've been praying for a long time and they, they seem so close to trusting Jesus a while ago, but now they've pulled right back. And you're annoyed at God. Why hasn't he saved them? Why hasn't he done what you expected him to do? How could he let them get so close and then not get them over the line? Let this be a reminder to you. God is in the business of saving people. 
He'll decide who. He'll decide how. All we do is pray and speak. And it's God that opens closed hearts. Maybe, uh, maybe you're not yet a Christian this morning. Uh, you're listening in because someone sent you the link. Maybe the jailer's story resonates with you. You're certainly not from a Christian background. You wouldn't really have given the, time of the Bible the time of day previously. But now, something's changing. You can't quite put your finger on it. You just can't quite get out, get out of your head. And if that's you, maybe God's at work on your heart. Maybe he's opening up what's been closed before. Maybe that jailer's killer question needs to be yours as well. What must I do to be saved? Don't let that question drift out of your mind as you um, turn off your laptop, as you head off to make lunch. Find a Christian, maybe the person who shared this link with you, or get in touch with us in the church office through our website and ask that question. Or just close your eyes and pray and ask God directly. You never know what he might do and what's the worst that can happen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what we see in Acts 16 of how you extraordinarily started this church in Philippi through the conversion of these two people who were so totally different from each other. Thank you that you love to save people. Thank you that you work powerfully in us. Thank you that you open closed hearts. Amen.